2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is... God's holy word, let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the reading of your word, that it brings life and health and instruction to our lives. We ask that through the preaching of your word, you might make us soldiers of the cross. Help us to understand our duty this day, that we might trust in your promises and live in light of those promises we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think there's any debate about it, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian. When it comes to reading the Old Testament, I think everyone would agree that what we have before us is a very bloody and violent series of books. I think for me, from uh, my perspective, it makes for perfect bedtime reading. Uh, You think of the book of Judges, where it has uh, a tremendous amount of blood guts and even uh, the right amount of potty humor, if you remember the story of Ehud versus Eglon. But these stories, we must remember, are never told in isolation. As Israel enters the land of Canaan, they are called to engage in a unique act of holy war. Uh, For our morning devotions, I think all of us would recognize that you can't read uh, the Lord's command to Israel to go and slaughter every man, woman, and child in the town of Ai and think, okay, here is the application for me today. Let me go find the nearest town called Ai and do the work. I think just the opposite is the case. We find these passages very disturbing But I think we should recognize we are not the only ones. Perhaps that might not make it easier, but it does recognize there are significant challenges when it comes to reading the Old Testament. What is that, Lord? You commanded your people to slaughter not just the old, but the young as Israel enters the land of Canaan. You read not only the new atheists, but the old atheists. This is one of the issues that they bring up. Uh, It's not a uh, a new item. It is not a new uh, 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 debate against Christianity. It's actually one of the earliest heresies that arises within the church. comes from those who try to attempt to answer this problem so much so that they claim that there were two different gods, the God of the Old Testament pitted against the God of the New. This is something that we have to reject outright, but... At the same time, we are all left feeling uh, that those stories in the Old Testament make us feel very, very uncomfortable. We are reminded that if you read 1 Samuel, it's the very reason that Saul loses the monarchy. The entire reason the kingship is driven from Saul's hand is because he finds this particular command to be uncomfortable, and so he refuses to execute every man, woman, and child. 
Yet we cannot simply relegate this problem to the Old Testament. We make it to the New Testament, and we find that our Savior himself uses disturbing language, at least from a worldly perspective. Jesus himself says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does he mean? And yet, as we read the Gospels, I think we all recognize that a certain shift has, in fact, taken, a, taken place, even if we don't know what to do with it. Think of when the apostles in Luke chapter 9, they're going from town to town proclaiming the arrival of the heavenly kingdom. The, the hopes and dreams of all Israel has finally come to pass now that the Messiah has appeared on the scene. And how do the villages respond? They, reset, they, they reject Jesus and his message wholesale. How do the apostles respond to such rejection? They say, Lord, should we not call down fire from heaven just like Elijah had done? You think, well, they're reading their Old Testament at least. Seems like a valid application, and yet what is Jesus' response to them? You don't know what you're talking about. What is it that the disciples got wrong? You think of the night of Jesus' own betrayal. As they are leaving the upper room and they head to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells the disciples to grab two swords along the way. And yet when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, Peter takes one of those swords and hacks off the ear of one of the servants. And what does Jesus do? He turns to Peter and says, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. What is it that Peter got wrong? As Christ is condemned under false charges and he stands before that man of violence, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks Jesus if he has any last words to say. And Jesus turns to that man of violence and begins to speak of the nature of his own kingdom, where he tells the Roman governor, my kingdom is not of this world. What does Jesus mean by this? This is, we have to recognize that the Old Testament and the New Testament, our Bibles, are not a loose anthology of disconnected stories, but there is an interior logic and cohesion to be found in these, but we all recognize that there are things that we have trouble reckoning with. But now that Christ has come, a significant shift has occurred in the nature of warfare. Warfare looks different under the new covenant, much more different than it looked under the old. But that does not mean that battles are not fought. They are still fought, but they are looked at differently. Jesus tells, I'm sorry, Paul tells us, Colossians chapter 2, that Christ has triumphed over death and hell. In fact, Paul, in the beginning of this letter, reminds us that Paul himself has been led as a captive in the host, uh, in the train of Christ's almighty, almighty act of victory. Uh, Paul tells Timothy that he must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. To the church of Ephesus, Paul tells the church that they are to don an armor, a sword, and a shield. See, the Christian life is a life of warfare. Battles are still fought, but what we find are that the weapons of our warfare are not earthly weapons. The battle is real, but the method of warfare has changed. The warfare is not absent, but it does look different. 
as it takes on a new and even heightened form of warfare in salvation history. As we begin this final section of Paul's letter, and again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, chapters 10 to 13 should be seen as a single uh, thematic entity. Paul is making a protracted argument as he now confronts false teachers in the church of Corinth. We notice that the tone shifts. Paul becomes a lot more militant in his tenor. And here he begins to speak about a war. And the nature of that warfare under the new covenant, where the Christian now fights a holy war. And yet this holy war is not for the acquisition of territory, but rather it is a battle for the mind and soul of human beings. We'll consider the nature of this warfare so we can understand the rest of Paul's argument in the coming weeks. There are three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, I'd like us to consider the conduct of our warfare, verses 1 to 2. Secondly, the arsenal of our warfare in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, the arena of our warfare in verses 5 and 6. So the conduct, the arsenal, and the arena. Uh, I want to consider how easy it is to be misunderstood in the midst of communication. I'm sure uh, James, being a communications professor, could tell you how easy it is to be misunderstood and how careful we must be. You know, as a, as a brief anecdote, I remember when I was in high school, one of my best friends had been dating this girl, a girl who's now been his wife for, for nearly 20 years now. Um, and, and I remember when we were seniors in high school, my buddy Neil came up to me and says, Charles, he says, I want you to, to try to compliment my girlfriend. She's convinced that you don't like her. And I said, that's crazy. I, I don't dislike her. Well, he says, well, please just give her a compliment. Okay, I'll give her a compliment. So I walked up to his girlfriend later that week. She'd just gotten a haircut. I said, Katie, you got a haircut. And her eyes lit up. She said, oh, you noticed? I went, yeah, it looks a lot better. Probably not the best way to articulate that. Intentions were well. I thought it used to look different than it is. It looks better now. Here is a compliment. was not taken uh, in the best uh, way. But by a, I think, fairly terrible analogy, Paul has been massively misunderstood here, albeit uh, through no fault of his own. See, Paul's plain preaching and his timid timid demeanor has been uh, massively misunderstood as a sign of weakness and worldliness among some of his hearers. As we'll see in the coming chapters, there are not enough bells and whistles in the estimation of Paul's detractors. Where are the visionary experiences? Where are the mystical highs? How is it that Paul can speak of Christ's victory when half of his ministry has been spent behind bars? This seems to be a contradiction in terms. And yet, of course, Paul has to keep driving home the point over and over again. It's because Paul's opponents have failed to understand the centrality of the cross, not just for the beginning of the Christian life, but for the whole nature of Christian discipleship. So Paul here admits, he says, look, I'm humble when face-to-face. It might be better to understand that word humble, maybe to translate it better, uh, more aptly as timid. I think that capture better, uh, uh, captures uh, his sense uh, better. 
If we were to understand it like that, he says, I'm timid when face to face with you, even if I'm rather intense in my writings. Uh, people have, confu- uh, have, have uh, complained about Paul as being, uh, again, if you remember earlier in, in chapter two of being uh, double-tongued, a man who is different in writing, he's heavy-handed with those letters, but in person, he has this weak and timid demeanor. And Paul's accusers are essentially claiming that Paul is a terrible spiritual leader. His timidity is an example of his own weakness. It's a theme that permeates this whole letter. Corinth has forgotten the foolishness of the cross. They have confused meekness for weakness. What Paul says here, Corinth, I beg you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. You remember we considered the the character, the virtue of meekness only a few weeks ago. We have to understand meekness as not weakness, but rather strength under control. And what Paul is bringing into view here is that Christian character is concerned with the manner of our conduct. Not just the matter of the things that we say, but the manner in which we say those very things, even when engaging our opponents. Think of Paul's letter to Timothy where he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil and correcting opponents with gentleness. When Paul writes to Titus, his co-laborer, he says to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy. Again, that word for meekness to all people. Paul brings home that same point here, that even when opponents persecute us, we have a code of conduct by which we are called to abide. They might not have to play by the rules we do. We are called to follow and model a particular individual, that individual being Christ himself. Think of Paul, uh, Peter's letter, uh, his first epistle, where he says, for it is to this very thing that you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, it's the atonement, it's our substitutionary representative, he died for you, but he died for you also, leaving an example that you might follow in his footsteps. When he committed no sin, or uh, he committed no sin, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Uh, even though he was verbally abused, he was reviled, he did not retaliate, retaliate with, uh, with verbal abuse or taunts or jeers. He did not threaten when he was abused. Rather, he continued entrusting himself to the Father who said, vengeance is mine, not yours. We are called to abide by a particular code of conduct. Paul has had his name dragged through the mud. He has been falsely accused of underhanded practices. Remember chapter 4 where he says, we as ministers of the word have not handled the word in deceiving and underhanded ways. Paul says, we have not acted deceitfully. Uh, We have not even retaliated. And yet Paul's opponents have seen uh, Paul's lack of retaliation as a form of weakness a form of worldliness, and he is walking according to the flesh rather than according to the the pomp and the power of the Spirit. Yet, as we will continue to see, Paul's own opponents have failed to understand the nature of the gospel. 
To use Martin Luther's own language, Paul has, uh, is being confronted with what he called, uh, Luther called theologians of glory rather than theologians of the cross. They see the work of the Spirit as being demonstrated in power and greatness and in, in mystical experiences and in escalating triumph in this day and age. And Paul has to say over and over again, no, the power of the Spirit is actually manifested in weakness, in foolishness, in suffering. You have to get this down or you will be led astray by false teachers. Paul is not weak. Rather, he is imitating Christ in meekness and gentleness and in doing so shows the church what true spirituality looks like, even in the midst of painful conflict. And so now begins to, Paul now begins to subvert Corinth's very understanding of where the true battle lies. We'll see this here in verses 3 and 4 where Paul says this, that though we walk in the flesh, in other words, uh, though we have a common human existence, we do not wage war according to the flesh. In other words, we do not wage our battles according to the standards and dictates of the wider world around us. I need to stop and think about it for a moment where a nation's strength is found. Most commonly, you see a nation's strength to be found in its military, in its military's arsenal. You think of uh, uh, the ancient Assyrians. Any uh, history textbook that uh, tells you about the Assyrians will tell you at least about this. They're famous siege towers. You read about ancient Sparta, you're going to read about their hoplite army. You read about Nazi Germany, you're going to be told about the tanks and how they defeated the Polish army who were fighting on horseback. The tanks trumped horses. You'll read about how Germany defeated Denmark in a matter of hours. A nation's strength is found in its military, and yet the arsenal of a military reflects something of the character of that nation, doesn't it? What we find is that the same is true with Christ's kingdom. The arsenal of Christ's kingdom reflects the nature of Christ's kingdom. Heaven's arsenal tells us something about heaven's character. Remember Jesus' own response to Pilate as Jesus is put on trial. I think we should recognize that just the opposite is taking place. It is Pilate himself who is being put on trial. As Jesus stands before Pilate, Jesus, the king of the whole universe, tells this puny little governor that he's misunderstanding the nature of of real power. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus tells his disciples, the the Gentiles use their earthly power and they lord it over others, but this is not how it operates in my kingdom. And Paul here is saying something very similar. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are not carnal Even as Paul fights to defend the gospel, he has to do so using the weapons of the Christian armory. He can't use something different. The ends do not justify the means. The means and the ends both must be regulated according to the word of God. And here the weapons of heaven are found not in swords, not found in tanks or in atomic firepower. 
but rather the weapon of heaven is found in the proclamation of the word of God. Simple, though it may be foolish in the sight of this world, yet Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Remember chapter four of this letter. Just as God spoke the worlds into existence by simply saying, let there be light. So now through the proclamation of the gospel, God speaks yet again, where the light now shines in our hearts. It's a glorious power that's only seen not in the forced subjugation of different peoples to a new religion in some type of act of jihad, but rather in the proclamation of the word and the work of the spirit in the hearts of those as he effectually draws people to himself, delivering them from the kingdom of darkness and translating them, as Paul writes to the church of Colossae, into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is why Paul calls the word the sword of the spirit. It is the weapon of the church. Our power, the church's power, if you recall uh, when we did our evening series in the church at the beginning of the year, the church's power is not coercive, rather it is spiritual. It is simply uh, declaratory, and the Spirit works through it, and it is far more powerful than if we had all the atomic firepower at our fingertips. We have something more powerful because it is God who works and brings the dead back to life through the simple foolishness of preaching. Hebrews chapter 4 is the word of God that quickens the dead. It is sharp and powerful, does not cut through flesh and bone. Rather, we have a sword that cuts through a heart of stone. You read the book of Revelation, we are told this is how Christ will vanquish his enemies on the last day. Christ will not descend from heaven with a bazooka hanging on his shoulder. Rather, he will simply speak. He will cut down his enemies with the sword of his mouth. That's why the Christian's arsenal is not found in taking up its muskets against a particular government, tribe, or people. The Christian's arsenal is found in the simple and humble and meek and gentle proclamation of the word of God. And we, as the church, have been enlisted to combat a dark kingdom, not through mystical arts, not through incantations or the casting of spells, but by confronting the mind. You see that here in verses 5 and 6, where Paul speaks of the arena of our warfare. Paul speaks about this in greater detail elsewhere. You think of Romans chapter 1. We, we talked about this. I used this illustration a few weeks ago at one of our Wednesday evening studies. But imagine going out uh, to the ocean uh, for a day with your kids, and you get a giant beach ball. And you're out there in the Pacific Ocean, probably wearing a wetsuit because it's much colder in the Pacific Ocean, I guess, than it is back home in Florida. But you get a giant beach ball, and you push it under the water, and as soon as you let go of that beach ball, what does it do? It pops right back up in your face. And so you get, you get you're a little upset, so you, you put more pressure on trying to keep the beach ball under the water. And any time you, you, it slips, it pops right back up, so you throw your whole weight on it. 
eventually the beach ball pops back up, what do you do? This is where the illustration will start to get kind of silly. You build a big moat. You put chains on top of the beach ball. You do everything you can. It's like a Disney cartoon, right? So he gets really frustrated. They really want that beach ball to stay submerged under the water. And so they have to reorient. They built the sandcastle, this moat. They built a prison for this beach ball. And yet the beach ball keeps popping up. Paul says that is exactly what the human race does with the knowledge of God. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, what Paul is saying is, here is a mankind who is living in God's world, but he fails. He, he refuses to recognize that this is, in fact, God's world. So what does he do? He denies that God exists. He tells himself that he is the master of his own fate. He tries to reorder and reorient his knowledge of the entire universe to try to drive the knowledge of God out of existence so he can continue to write laws as he sees fit so that he can do what he thinks is right in his own eyes. But try as hard as he may, the knowledge of God keeps popping back up and it makes him angrier and angrier and angrier. So he develops these thought patterns that tries to do everything it can so he can feel safe and secure and comfortable to continue living in his life of sin. He builds his own uh, kingdom as nothing more than a sandcastle. He pretends that he is king of his castle. He lives in a fantasy world. And yet in doing these things, he becomes trapped and enslaved to his own sinful passions. He tells himself, perhaps this one particular sin that I really love doing isn't as bad as people make it out to be. What's wrong with a little pornography, or sleeping with your girlfriend, or gay marriage. The list goes on and on and on. And so there is this attempt, not just at the individual level, but also at the national level to write or rewrite laws so that the people can do whatever they want to do, those things that they think is right in their own eyes. And for Paul, the Christian's holy war is a liberation campaign cloaked in meekness, clad with the sword of the Spirit on a crusade to destroy those mental strongholds that keep a rebellious humanity enslaved in sin. That's why we read the book of Acts. What is it that Paul does day in and day out? He begins reasoning with people. Times two, three years at a time, reasoning with people trying to convince them the inconsistency of their own thought life to bring their thought life in subjugation to the kingship of Christ. Look at verse five, Paul says, we destroy what? People? That is not what he says. He says we destroy arguments. Those lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Those habitual thought patterns that deny the kingship of Christ. What kind of thought patterns? Well, any type of thought pattern that runs contrary to the word of God. It could be one who denies the existence of God or the creation of the world. 
Maybe one who denies the goodness of marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. It could be denying the nature of sin or uh, absolute truth or morality. The fact that salvation is a free gift that comes uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, rather than according to works. Paul says our job is to destroy those lofty arguments that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. To continue put, continually being put, uh, putting before those in whom we engage in a meek and gentle way, saying this is what the word of God says, this word which is powerful for bringing the dead back to life, and saying, are you living in light of this? Notice how your lofty opinions run contrary to reality. In one sense, we could say that the Christian war is an intellectual war. It is certainly not anti-intellectual. It is a battle, Paul says here, that is waged for the mind. It's why it is that Paul says we are destroying those lofty arguments. But we also must recognize that it is also more than that. If this were merely an intellectual campaign, our goal would simply be to win the argument, to make the smartest people in the room through whatever tactic that was available. But for Paul, it is not just the mind, it is the whole person. The mind, the will, the affections, the heart is the target. It is a battle for the soul of of man. So where we cannot bypass the mind, it is not simply the mind that we are after. This is why Paul is so uh, uh, vigilant to tell people that our manner of conduct is as important as the matter of our speaking because our goal is to win over the person, not just to get them to say, that's it, you're right. Now don't talk to me ever again. We're here to win over the person, to let them see the glory of Christ, that Christ as king offers a better world than a world where any of us would ever live and reign as kings. In the book of Acts, Paul goes from town to town, reasoning day and night, speaking of Christ's kingship and the necessity of repentance of faith. You remember our uh, New Testament lesson a few weeks ago was Paul, for three years, stand, or two years, stands before uh, Felix, another governor, Reasoning day and night, speaking of the necessity of Christian virtue, of the reality of the final judgment, and the fact that we have been given and offered a great salvation that can only be received through faith alone. We'll see as this relates to Corinth's own problems in the coming weeks. But here, Paul, I think, lays down some basic operating principles that are true for Christians everywhere, even for this church here in Corvallis, Oregon, in the 21st century. I'd like us to consider three, uh, briefly three ways in which this particular passage helps us in our call, particularly in our, our method and means of evangelism and discipleship. 
First, this passage speaks to us regarding our conduct. It reminds us that the conduct of our warfare consists in meekness and gentleness, and it is just as important as the spiritual weapons of our warfare. They are inseparable. Just as every nation has its own code of conduct in wartime, its own rules of engagement, so also the church as the kingdom of Christ on earth. That our conduct is to be always, at all times, one of gentleness and meekness in imitating our Savior. How many of us see it as our task to be the defender of truth on social media? And we use it to justify being a jerk all in the name of Christ. Might I present before you a counterpoint, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, where Paul says it doesn't justify it. Defend the truth, yes, but the manner of our defense is equally as important. Remember my old, uh, my old professors, Dr. Gaffin, once told me the truth carries its own offense. When the truth comes like a wrecking ball, and it will come like a wrecking ball, and knock down uh, those castle walls that that human beings erect so that they can pretend living in their own mini kingdom, that's going to be offensive enough. Don't let your personality be the cause of offense. Let the word carry its own offense but also let it carry the great joy that comes when those walls are knocked down and we see the light of the gospel penetrate through the dungeon and the darkness. It takes courage to speak the truth, but don't just speak the truth and use it as an excuse to be a a jerk, a a sanctified jerk of some sorts. Try to think through what they're going through and try to show how the gospel brings liberty from bondage. I think the second significant feature in this passage is that of our weapons of war, our arsenal. It reminds us that the nature of warfare has changed now that Christ has come. We are still called to defend the faith and advance the gospel, and it uses martial imagery Uh, But this is not a jihad, a jihad against the government or another uh, religion or people by physical force of arms. It seems so puny to speak of the power of the word. And yet Paul has already written in a previous letter to the church of Corinth that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those uh, who scoff at it. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. I think that should remind us what the church's main task is. There's always that temptation to go, well, what if we just kind of beefed up the service a little bit more? What if we had, you know, a a pyrotechnics, a firework display, a light show, something that would draw in the crowds or win over the hearts of the young? What if we as a church had greater social prestige? What if we had a, a, a head seat at the, at the cultural table, then people would listen to us more? And yet we have to be reminded that uh, the weapons that we have for our warfare are not carnal. 
The word of God is powerful on its own. It doesn't need us to try to be the cool kids at the table to make the gospel more effective. We're simply called to say what the Bible says and to do so with gentleness and meekness. It carries its own power. It's mighty to the tearing down of strongholds, those, uh, those false thinking patterns, um, those strongholds that exhibit the ways in which mankind denies God by his thoughts and his deeds. You think of uh, the hymn we, we opened with this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Just one little word shall fell the kingdom of Satan. It's a hymn that focuses on the power of the word. And it's a spiritual power. It's not given to an individual. Uh, it's not given to a, a lone ranger Christian or a bunch of soldier of fortune Christians. But it is a spiritual power that's been communicated to the church. It's declaratory. Christ is king and he offers forgiveness of sins. And that's what we hear week in and week out when we assemble as the people of God. And that is what is powerful to change lives. That is where the emphasis is to lie. And yet we see part of the nature of the spiritual power in verse 6. Paul says, being ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience is complete. Again, Paul is on the war path against false teachers in the church and false teaching within the church. Those who continue to deceive the church. When you look at chapter 13, Paul himself will say, when he comes to Corinth face to face, if the church has not excommunicated these impenitent imposters, Paul will do so himself, and he will not spare a single one. That is a holy boldness. And yet, we notice the way in which Paul confronts his opponents is not through lopping off their heads, but it is through the spiritual power that's been communicated to the church through the act of church discipline. Final significant feature, the arena of our warfare is that of the mind. Not just the minds of others, but ourselves. Notice how Paul ends this passage. Being ready to punish every disobedience when? Once your obedience is complete. It'd be very easy to turn this, um, uh, this message into kind of a, a methodology for doing evangelism or apologetics, and part of that is there. Um, but we would miss the mark if we failed to apply it to our own hearts. This is not simply about going out and confronting the minds of those out there. It is about ensuring that our own mind is confronted with the word of God and that our own thoughts have been made subject to the kingship of Christ. Here we have a reminder that is set before us where we are called to personal holiness in our own thought life. That those temptations, those opinions, and those arguments that we ourselves have, they always not, uh, must be measured up and put under the scrutiny of the spotlight of God's word. We're not simply called as a church to instate you know, the Inquisition 2.0, where we always call into question the sins of others. Or rather, Paul is calling upon us here. Under inspiration of the Spirit, he calls upon us to reflect and to expose and to uproot that sin that exists in our own hearts as well that we must be called to complete our own obedience. I came home last, uh, uh, last evening from, we had Presbytery up just outside of Seattle, which should have been a three and a half, four hour drive due to a series of 
uh, car accidents turned out to be an eight-hour drive. I did not feel like a Christian at 5.30 yesterday afternoon. I recognized how unsanctified my own heart is, how angry I can get, how I thought, ah, I'm not as judgmental a guy as I used to be. Well, 5.30 yesterday, I was reminded how judgmental uh, I can still really be, how even I have to subject my own thought life to the kingship of Christ. And that's what we're called to do here, to ask ourselves, in what way does our thought life deny Christ as King and Lord? What thought patterns follow a path that God's law prohibits, be it anger or lust, of financial matters, greed, covetousness, idolatry? The battle does not begin with our neighbor or even then the person sitting next to us in the pew. The battle begins in our own hearts. And this is where the offense of the gospel must first begin. Judgment, as Peter says, begins at the house of God. The gospel is offensive because it proclaims the very last thing that the world wants to hear, that there is one king, and that king is not the self. That king is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a reminder that we too must be confronted with, that not even we must sit as kings enthroned in our own hearts, but that there is one king as the church confesses, and it is not the Pope, but it is not the pastor, and it is not ourselves. That King is the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be ever vigilant to fight the war and putting sin to death in our own lives. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word and ask that you would grant us the humility uh, to submit ourselves body and soul to you, that we might be diligent to do all that you have required of us and that we might trust in you and the promises that you freely give us through Christ, our King, our prophet, and our priest. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.